Welcome to an exegetical study of biblical scripture. This scripture is God's speech, God's story, written through the hands of men by his spirit, and it's all about God's glory. My name is Bryce Ferguson. Join me now as we go into the word. This is Genesis. Welcome, my brothers and sisters, to a day of worship and to a day in God's word. I greet you in the wonderful name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And let's pray. Dear wonderful God, dear holy God, dear set apart God, magnificent and wonderful are you in all the earth and beyond the earth in time and outside of time, the God of creation, the one who has made all of this, everything that we see, everything that we smell, everything that we hear, everything that we touch, everything we can feel in our heart. You have made this all. You have made this all in abundant provision for us, humanity, for us, your children, in great forethought and planning and organization and a created order, you have done all this for your glory and for us. And this is the order of it, you and then us. Let us not forget that, Lord. As we dig in now to your word, I invite the Holy Spirit to move us and change us and shape us to be more so in the likeness of Jesus Christ, our Savior. We pray this in your name. Amen. Folks, let me ask you a question. If God commanded you to do something, would you listen? Or if God commanded you not to do something, would you listen? Part of the scripture today in Genesis 2 is a narrative of the same or part of the same timeline as we've read about previously in Genesis 1, talking specifically about the creation of plants and the creation of man. So with your Bibles, please join me in Genesis 2, verse 4 and following. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. 
The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Adelium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gehon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Let's stop there for today. Folks, let me tell you about the amazing love of God. That is what I read here in this passage. There is abundant provision for man. There is this very special and thriving environment that God wants to have a relationship with man in. He created all of this for, yes, God's glory and for man. He created this incredible garden. No garden on earth today, I think, compares to how we read the Garden of Eden described. In its landmass, in its vastness, that there is every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. God made to spring up. This was a place of abundance. This was a place of lavish love of God shown visibly and tangibly and edibly <laughs> to man. This was the gift. This was the, the, the plan to be set forth for man. For man, and then we'll read later about woman and then about mankind multiple generations forward. This is an incredible environment where God is to be with man. And of course, this is all before the fall. When we see that the earth is stained and there is a darkness from the fall, and we'll get to that in Genesis 3, but God sets out the marker he puts down the marker here in Genesis 2. Some call it the Adamic covenant or the covenant that God made with Adam. And we do see the multiple lines here of what God is setting forth to Adam. That there are limits and that there are um, opportunities on the other side of what is limited that there is abundance, that there is provision, that there is essentially what we see God say throughout the rest of the scripture. And yes, we'll see this said in a similar way with Adam. But that the Lord is creating Adam here in this passage. And he's saying essentially 
I'm going to make a relationship with you. I'm going to create a relationship with you. I'm choosing you. God chooses. I will be your God, and you will be my people. And for Adam, it would be singular, I guess, because he is the only one that had an individual relationship with God before there were other humans. So I guess it would be, I will be your God and you will be my person. As amazing as that is, that there was this individual relationship and he was the only human on earth yet. He was the first human altogether. Adam. Or the first man. What an incredible, intimate, in terms of a very, very deep and personal and abiding, you could call it a best friendship type of relationship. However, one of the friends in that relationship is your creator, is your God, is your father. And he's also in so many ways your best friend. This is the amazing relationship that we know in large part because of a personal relationship that God invites each one of us to have with him. But there was also this awestruck type of or, or ominous type of relationship. There were no other humans. This was Adam and this was God. And it was God first and God created Adam because humans did not exist on earth until God created them. They did not evolve from science. They did not evolve out of whatever atheists, atheist scientists want to say or presuppose or guess. See, a lot of science is theory, funny enough. I'm not saying I don't believe in science. I do believe in science because God created science. God created science. God enabled science. God enabled intelligence. God enabled analytical skills. God enabled critical thinking skills. God enabled mathematics. God enabled sociology. God enabled psychology. God enabled all of these things. I believe in science. I don't believe that we evolve from apes because the Bible refutes that outright. Says a man was created in the image and the likeness of God with great forethought. God says, Let's go back. Genesis 1 26. Then God said, Let us. That's forethought. That's planning. That's a declaration of intent. This is very intentional, folks. Let us. Make man in our image after our likeness. The Trinitarian God of the Bible is speaking, folks. Three in one. One God, three persons, and he says, singular he and Trinitarian he, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And... Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God, verse 27, created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, 
he created them. God is very intentional. God is very driven. It's not how you've heard some people describe God. That he is out of touch with mankind. Agnostics. That he, sure, possibly he was the creator, and then he is too busy to concern himself with the things of this world or with humanity. The humanity, he created humanity, but humanity's on their own. Do you think for one second that a God who's so intentional and so purpose-driven and so passionate to do all of this creation, to have this type of relationship with the first man and then after him with all humanity would ever be like that. No, he wouldn't. And he's not. And that's a lie that the pagans promulgate and they espouse and they propagandize. And there are many lies in this world going around, and there are many people groups, and there are many false religions. And as as you read Genesis, and as you read Exodus, and as you read Leviticus, and as you read Numbers, and as you read Deuteronomy, you will read this over and over and over again, that false religions spring up everywhere. That Satan is at work. God doesn't sleep. I don't believe, and Satan doesn't sleep. And that's unfortunate because Satan is causing all sorts of evil to continue in this world. And the ones who are a threat to Satan are not the ones who are checked out, the humans who are checked out and have have no concept and no conviction for God because they're not a threat to Satan. Think about this for a second. God is a threat to Satan because Satan is opposed to everything God stands for and who he is. And Satan is trying to grasp and cling and put his claws in the minds and the hearts of every single person on earth who has an inkling towards God or who is devoted towards God. Because they are of God. They're God followers. They are, when they give their lives to God, when they surrender their life to Jesus Christ, they are filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the same Holy Spirit that is part of the Trinitarian God of the Bible. It is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And when you come to Christ, when you lay down your life to Christ, You invite the Holy Spirit in. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in you. You may still struggle with sin. But if you've truly surrendered your life to Christ, then your paradigm has completely shifted in your mind. That you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, to honor your God with your body too. If you love me, you will obey my commandments, Jesus says. God the Father says that in the Old Testament. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. Obey my commandments. My children are the ones who obey my commandments. See, 
followers of God, those who have surrendered their life to Christ, desire to obey God's commandments. And therefore, they are a threat to the evil one. Because the evil one wants every single person to disobey God's commandments. And the ones who have great enablement to obey God's commandments are his children, are God's children, are the ones who are saved by Christ, are Christians. And those who profess the Messiah like Messianic Jews because they receive the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. And this transforms everything. Let's go back here to Genesis 2. When no bush, verse 5, when no bush of the field yet was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. We talked before in the different days of creation in Genesis 1 about photosynthesis and how could this be? How could plants grow without the sun or without water? These are both needed for plant life. God specifies it here. Then the Lord God formed a man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Scripture says here, at least in the English Standard Version translation that I'm reading, that the man became a living creature. Creature is a way to describe mankind, if you will, in this example. But obviously, as we've talked about before, there is a complete distinction between any other living creature on earth and this man became a living creature. So don't be confused with the terminology of creature here. Man is not an animal. Man is not a sea creature. Man is not a creeping thing that creeps on the ground. Man is not a plant. This is utterly and completely different for the reasons aforementioned in Genesis 1, 26, and 27. Mankind is made in the image and the likeness of God. This is very intentional, very intentional. God would not give the charge to man about having dominion on the earth to a simple creature that was not eternal and was not made in his image and likeness. This is very intentional. Man, okay, so with creation, let's look at what I just read here in verse 7 and contrast that with the created order in chapter 1. So God's creation in chapter 1 was by God speaking, speaking. And God said in verse 3, let there be light. And there was light. Verse six, and God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the, in the expanse, in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. 
Verse 9, and God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place, let dry land appear, and it was so. Verse 11, and God said, let the earth sprout vegetation and plants. Verse 14, and God said, let there be expanse, excuse me, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Verse 20, and God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. Verse 24, and God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. Verse 26, and God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Verse 27 says, so God created man. But it didn't say specifically how until here in chapter 2, verse 7. This is not God speaking man's creation. This is a very, I will say, almost hands-on type of activity. Then the Lord God formed the man. Formed. How do we as humans form something tangible? With our hands, normally. Some people with their feet and or a combination thereof. Or with tools. But again, that is a using of the hands and or the feet. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. Obviously, our body composition is not 100% dirt or earth, as we talked about previously. That the land, that the, that the dirt is called earth. But God used part of the organic matter, the carbon, if you will, and perhaps other elements in his creation of human man. He formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. This is amazing to me. Two very, very distinct points of creation with how God made man. The first one we just talked about. That it is using organic matter from God of what he has already created and he formed man. Different than speaking, this is, and speaking is personal. Don't, don't get me wrong. When it's God's voice, it is personal. It is very important, but there is a different creation going on here. The Lord God formed the man, the one who is to be made in his image after his likeness. He personally formed him. And how did life enter the man after he was formed? God breathed into his nostrils. Does this mean that our God inhales oxygen and breathes out carbon dioxide? This is that he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. 
God the Father is not a man as we are men and women. This is something different, but this is, in terms of elements, in terms of oxygen, carbon dioxide, for man would need to breathe in oxygen, right? This is a very personal connection that God is making with his creation of man. That God breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life. And then the man became a living creature. Since God the Father is spirit, and God the Son took on human form, and I believe that we see God the Son in human form multiple times in the Old Testament, and we'll get to that, in terms of a visitation, in terms of a messenger at times, God's messenger. But we see this human-type descriptor for God to man in verse 7. We, as humans, all understand breathing, well, <laughs> breathing in general, of course, but for the great majority of us, I would say that you had received some type of CPR instruction at some point. What do you do in CPR? And I understand that the standards have changed, and sometimes it was chest compressions only, and you got away from... But when I was little, it was breathing in through the cavities that exchange air, right? You pinch the nose, so you tilt the head back. Don't use this as medical advice, folks, but I'm just saying the general instruction was to tilt the head back above the patient, the unresponsive patient who's not breathing, pinch their nose and breathe into their mouth. There's an air exchange. I think this was something that personal in verse 7. That the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils not just anything, folks, the breath of life. God enabled every human forward to operate in the exchange of an atom for his life on earth after his creation, the exchange of oxygen and then carbon dioxide, right? We bring in oxygen, we send out or we exhale carbon dioxide and then the plants do what? They do the reverse. They take in carbon dioxide and they produce oxygen. Fascinating. And this is how we have life on earth. But I think it was even something a little bit different here. I think there was a personal breath of life. The breath of life. And I'll connect this in very quickly. Uh, let me get back to it here. This is, there we go, in verse 9. I was looking ahead too far. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. God breathes into man the breath of life, and then there is a 
tree of life. What do we make of this? We make God is very intentional. God is very purpose driven. And guess what? God cares about life. Life is very precious to him. It's very. There's a sanctity to it. It's very he's very reverent about it. Your life is very important to God. Sure, he knows every single one of your days. He knows how many days you will live on the earth. And he knows how many days that a baby who was born just a few weeks ago and is lying in the hospital clinging to life will live on the earth. And he knows babies who don't even make it one day, how long they will live on the earth. And he knows someone who's 110 years old and still living, how long they will live on the earth. But in all of that, God is still the God of life. See, there is the God of life, who is sovereign over all things and in control of all things at all times, and who rules the entire creation with all dominion. And he imparts to man part dominion or limited dominion or a limited authority. But God is the one who is fully in control of all things at all times. He sets the standard. He sets the rules. He sets the limitations. He sets the rhythms. He sets the distinctions. That there is water and then there is land, that there is light and then there is darkness, that the land will go only to here and then it's water, that the water will only go here and then it's land. That there will be a created order and that man has limitations. Let's read on. The Lord God planted, verse 8, a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So Adam, the first man, is alive. In verse 7, because God breathed into him, that God formed him from the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Verse 9, and out of the ground... The Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. A massive garden, folks. Massive. Huge. And God causes vegetation to thrive and to live. Every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Talk about an abundant provision to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life, like the breath of life, the tree of life was in the midst of the garden. This is a good thing just by its definition. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's already a little bit of curiosity there, even in a first reading for someone reading that the first time. What is this tree? Let's continue. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. Okay, we're talking about a very large river, obviously. If it divides and becomes four, 
still by definition, rivers, not streams, not creeks, rivers. So we are talking about a very large garden and a very large river that is watering this garden. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. Gold, a precious metal. Of course, everyone knows what gold is. It is the one, uh, excuse me, I already read that, and the gold of that land is good. God declares it is good. Like he said in chapter one about creation, bdellium and onyx stone are there. Bdellium is an interesting one, folks. If you look it up today, it'll say it is a gum resin used in perfumes, incense, uh, some traditional medicine. There's also a description that says it was a similar but less costly substitute for myrrh. Myrrh, in my mind, immediately goes to the, th the wise men when they bring their gifts to Jesus. No, I don't know specifically that the Bible is making a correlation here. Just saying, that's where my mind goes. But it's unknown whether this label of bdellium is what is in the garden. Different scholars have different opinions, and some would say that bdellium, as it's mentioned in Genesis 2 here, was also a precious stone, like the gemstone of onyx, which is very unique, by the way. But what we can see at the very least is these are all very beautiful. The name of the second river is the Kahon, and it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east out of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. A few of these rivers you'll find on the map, and a few of them you won't. And it's debated on where that actual location of the Garden of Eden is in, on the present day uh, geographical map. Verse 15, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Work and keep. Two words that could be used synonymously. But I also think that it's different here. We talked about work last week. We talked about work and we talked about Sabbath. And we talked about work with regard to God resting at the start of Genesis 2 from all the work that he had done in Genesis 1. God is a God of work. And guess what? God is also a God of rest. And what does it mean to rest? It means to stop. And in that stopping, to trust God more than trusting in yourself, more than trusting in yourself to achieve everything that you want to achieve either in this life, in your career, or in this one single day. That there is nothing that you have to do today that takes a substitute for spending time with God. And especially, at least on a weekly basis, carving out one day of intentional time with the Lord. Because God said, come to me, you who are, are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. We find our restoration, our true rest in God. And God set out this rhythm 
like so many rhythms in Genesis 1, to work and then to rest. So when God said that he created the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it, I read work and I know what that means. And keep is more personal. Keep is something that you feel that you have ownership over or a managerial delegation over. You have a responsibility over. You can be a worker and go and do your work at a, at a, you know, a single job site or a single retail job or, or your friend asks you to come over and do work and then you leave their house and you come back home to your house. You don't feel that you have a specific, sure, if your work ethic is where it should be, then you still feel that you have some responsibility for the work that you did that day. But this is different. God put him in the garden. God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. There's a delegation of responsibility here. There is a shared ownership in a way, if you will, look at it that way here. He's saying to man, I'm giving you, Genesis 1, dominion in a certain way. Now work this and keep this. What else do we see? Verse 16, and the Lord God commanded the man. Now we have a command. This is different. This is different than speaking. This is different than casual conversation, though anything that the Lord says we should follow. But when God commands something, we see in the Ten Commandments in Exodus, and then again repeated in Moses' language in Deuteronomy, the same Ten Commandments. When God commands something, this is to be utterly followed. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. And remember, folks, every tree. What does it say? It goes too far. Every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Verse 9. You may eat of every tree. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So there is this abundant provision from God to man in this garden. Food in rampant abundance. And it's good because God declared it to be good. But now there is a prohibition. There is a marker laid down again. There is a boundary line. We talked about boundaries in Genesis 1. We talked about how the water was over the entire face of the earth and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then how God contained. He contained the darkness by creating light. There was a distinction. There was a rhythm. There was a rotation of the earth, sun and moon. There's a distinction. There's a containment, if you will, in that way on the earth. 
We see that he contains the waters and restricts them into certain areas and causes dry land to appear. So the earth, as we know it, is 70% ocean and sea and largely deep water. So then it would be roughly about 30% land in these other areas. Well, the ocean doesn't overtake the land. There's a boundary. There's a line. There's a limitation. There's a restriction. And then we see in the different order of creation in Genesis 1 in these different categories that there are limitations, that there are restrictions. Man does not have the ability to fly. Man is tethered to the earth by gravity, which God created. There is atmosphere. There are levels of atmosphere, which God created. There is light and there is dark. There are animals and there is vegetation. And there are limitations. And there are rules, which God created. And now God makes something explicitly clear for man, who he has just created very, very personally, very intimately, if you will, use that word. It just means they were extremely close, that, that man meant more to God than all of these other created things in Genesis 1. And we'll read about further how because God made man in his image and likeness, therefore man is eternal, like God. And if you submit and you surrender your whole life to God, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, i.e. you will be with God after this life. You will be with God. You are of the kingdom of heaven. And if you don't, then you will be apart from God, but you will still be in eternity. This is part of the image and likeness of God, that God dwells in eternity. And therefore, because we are all made in the image and after the likeness of God, then we are also made for more than just this life on earth. And for the righteous, that is for righteous purposes. That is for holy purposes. That is for set-apart purposes. Because God is holy. Because God is set-apart. Therefore, we will be with God and we will be holy. And we will be set-apart. Taking now the likeness of Christ, the name of Christ onto ourselves. That at the entrance to heaven... It will be the shed blood of Jesus that testifies to God the Father on our behalf and pays the price for entrance into the kingdom, the kingdom, excuse me, of heaven. Because it's nothing that we have done on earth. It's simply that we believe and trust in Christ and in what God has done for us. Let me say something else here about this last verse. Prohibition is loving. 
God does not prohibit you from something without a specific purpose and a reason. Again, God is the one who dwells outside of time. None of this would have happened unless God had created it. And what I mean by none of this, I mean everything that was created. Humanity, life, if God had not breathed into his nostrils, man would not exist. The planet would not be here. Earth would not be here. Dirt would not be here. Water would not be here. Sun would not be here. Moon would not be here. Stars would not be here. Atmosphere would not be here. Vegetation would not be here. Everything would not be here if God had not created it. Therefore, God sets the rules. God sets the dominion. God sets the guidelines. God sets the restrictions. Anything God does is good. Anything God does is holy. Anything God does is set apart. And we are to obey him and trust him and love him in this. The Bible says a father disciplines a son he loves. And we haven't even talked about discipline yet. But along with that, it would say a father restricts a son from things because he loves him. In that same vein, in that same language, in that same teaching, we can derive that. Right? You don't want your child or your animal to get close to a hot stove. You don't want them to run out into a busy street or a not very busy street chasing a toy when they're too small to know the difference. You prohibit them from doing that. You either restrict your dog because you put a leash on them or you keep them in the house because you know there's dangers outside or you limit some form of their movement and the same with a human child and much more so and much more important. They are eternal, made in the image and the likeness of God and you've got a great responsibility to look after their well-being. But you prohibit them from doing things and certain things inside the home as well. You keep certain items in the kitchen away from your small children. And you keep other items and objects around the home from them as well. You don't want them to get close to something really heavy that might fall on them or anything else that might get close to them and cause them harm. This is prohibition. God was setting forth to Adam. I'm giving you a commandment. This is not a suggestion. This is not a request. This is a command. You are prohibited from eating from this one tree in all of the vast Garden of Eden that I've created in lavish abundance for you. Every good tree, pleasing to the eye for fruit, for food, except this one. Don't eat from this one. If God commanded you to do something or not do something, would you listen? Let's pray. Dear loving God, dear loving Father, the one who has created all things, who sustains all things with 
your spirit, by your word, the one who very personally reached in to personally form man from the dust of the ground, from the dirt of the ground. Different than speaking creation into existence, which I find just as awesome and just as amazing. But you reached down and you had this personal touch and this personal encounter with man because you, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, chose to make man in your image, Trinitarian God, in your likeness. Therefore, we have a great responsibility in that, to follow you with this passion and this intensity and to obey your commandments. And also, God, to trust you in the prohibitions. Let curiosity not be the reason that we stray. I read that in Ecclesiastes multiple, multiple, multiple times. The curiosity is what leads someone to sin. And I think every one of us would confess that we know that also. Lord God, by your Holy Spirit, let us put unholy curiosity to death and to cling to you, the author of life, to cling to you, the one who formed man personally, who breathed into his nostrils the breath of life because you have this intense love for man. Let us hold closely to you, God, and to love you more than anything else, to love you and to trust you. We pray this all in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Join me next time as we continue in God's story of creation in Genesis 2.